0: The best way for you to keep up to date with the Manson Podcasting Network and all of our new podcasts is by subscribing to our free weekly newsletter, Company on Sundays. Company on Sundays.substack.com This is Company, I'm Sky Manson. Growing up as one of four children on a sheep farm in southern New South Wales, I think I always knew that it would not be me that was coming home to work as the farmer, in adverted commas. This was never implicitly suggested, it was just a feeling, but I think for females who've grown up on a farm, I'll bet that many of you have had the same feeling. Today's guest, Jess Howard, certainly did. She grew up on a farm in Western Queensland and a career or a life in agriculture didn't quite feel right to her, but with such a strong attachment to the land and the place that she grew up, this has always been something that's felt uncomfortable. As she carved her path in jobs and vocations internationally, there was always a yearning to return home, to be able to contribute to agriculture and her family's long-held love of life on the land. Is this a feeling that you've ever had? I most certainly have. Here are my musings on this. Just because you don't want to be a farmer, in adverted commerce doesn't mean that you don't want to be part of life on the land to help build up the industry at large, the communities that live there, and to do something with your talents that honour your family's values and business direction. I think up until now, it's been hard for families to recognise, support and celebrate the multitude of skills that could be put to good use in an agricultural operation. Don't get me wrong, it's definitely changing now, but it is a quandary that's been felt by women all over and at a very deep level. If you're not the farmer, then you're not really involved. I'm not sure if this is making sense. It's certainly something I've wanted to express for a long time. but I So I'll let you listen to this conversation with Jess Howard, who's the editor of the Bush Journal and one of the women behind the Beauty in the Bush Collective, an Instagram account that really showcases the true beauty of life on the land across Australia through some seriously high-quality photography. By way of delving into her story, we can see... That although Jess is not the farmer, she's making a huge contribution to the industry by telling stories through beautiful images and reflecting the truth and the feeling and the values that really come from farming.
1: Hi, I'm Jess Howard. I live on the Sunshine Coast in Queensland with my husband and two little boys. And I'm the founder and editor of Bush Journal.
0: I have a feeling that there's a long kind of journey that you've been through before you actually arrived at the Bush Journal. And I want to run through that journey. Tell me about photography and what part it's played in your life and why it interested you.
1: I was a TV journalist and producer for about 15 years before I started my photography business. And so for a long time, I was working with really skilled cameramen and cinematographers cinematographers in the latter years that really gave me a good sense of I guess the theory of photography and framing and uh, subjects and light and actually I think a lot of photographers will tell you this that light is kind of the most important part of photography I kind of learned from the best if that makes sense without actually learning photography from them I learned the theory of photography uh, and understanding and reading light from them And so for me, it felt like a really natural progression. After I had my son in 2015, I was living in London and working in a job I really hated and looking for a creative outlet. I toyed with the idea of graphic design and my husband said, if you do that, you'll always be stuck behind a computer like me. So have a go at photography. By that stage, I'd been second shooting on documentaries uh, and that was video, but the theory was kind of the same. You have the main shooter uh, and then someone capturing cutaways. And when you don't have a great budget, a huge budget, like um, I shot a show in Mongolia and I produced that, but they always needed someone on the second camera. I just kind of jumped on the second camera and I didn't have a huge amount of skill and most of my shots were kind of unusable, but just cutaways, basically details. But it taught you to kind of tell a story with images and so that was kind of how I came to photography.
0: Interesting also that you were, as a TV journo, that you were interested in the pictures and the technicalities of how that came together, because not everybody, not every TV journo is.
1: Well, I think in the early years I wasn't. I was just wanting to get my mug on camera, like every young journo, just thinking that that was the bee's knees. I was always creative, though, and looking for an outlet. And it wasn't until I moved to London and started working for a business channel. So post financial crisis, the city of London was really gutted and a lot of banks, you know, were laying off 50,000 staff. So the business channel, it was kind of a flow on effect of that and gutted the newsroom. And because I could do lots of things, uh, I was one of the ones who stayed. I also needed a job for my visa. So I think they were just being nice. So at that point, (laughs) oh, I don't know. I cried a lot. (laughs) I don't know whether that swayed them or not. But it was kind of at that point that they just gave us these really amazing cameras, like $20,000 cameras and said, well, you're a digital journalist now, a digital video producer, just go for it. I was at work. I would do these 15 hour days for months and months trying to learn video editing and shooting with these cameras and lighting setups and whatever. And it's kind of the best way to learn. It's definitely stressful, but it's the best way to learn is just being thrown in and having to create these packages. Because, you know, Sky, like when you're a journalist and you're working uh, in a network, you're surrounded by all of these people who play important parts in creating the end product. So you're the journo, but you have a cameraman or you have an editor or both creating this package that goes to air at night. But suddenly I was that person. I was like, I was all the things.
0: I so a remember this time in the media. You know, it happened with the ABC too. Although as a rural reporter, we were always all the things, like doing the mm. interview and the research and cutting the interviews and actually presenting them and putting them to air and then the online component. But I so remember what you're talking about, that the ABC suddenly invested in cameras and everyday news journalists had to become cameramen and put together their own news stories. Most people were freaked out, but you sounded like you loved it.
1: Oh, I freaked out and I cried every day, I think, for months I was learning new software as well. Like I'd never touched the Adobe Creative Suite, which is now my daily kind of go-to software. And then suddenly I was thrown Premiere Pro, you know, which they edit movies in. So to get my head around that, and there's a big technical component to getting stories to air that I never even considered, you know, understanding files and file formats and frame rates was a lot, but it was a, Fantastic background for photography because suddenly I was aware of light and framing and storytelling uh, Mm. in a way that I'd never, I'd never even thought about before because I had someone to do it for me.
0: And when you say storytelling, explain that a little bit more like the sequence of events, of images that when Well, I
1: think there's a difference between snapping a photo and telling a story. I think a lot of photographers when they're starting out you know, take happy snaps of their kids. And that's certainly what I did, I think, a lot. But, you know, just seeing the subject and snapping and not thinking about the story that it's telling. So and someone who does this fantastically is Pip Williams, who's a photographer friend of mine who I'm sure you've heard of. She has this incredible ability to capture a subject but tell almost tell the story of their life in that frame. And you know, it's just understanding what lens use when and frame an image so that you're not just smacking someone's head in the frame, but you're really telling a deeper story about who they are, uh, their environment, how they feel even. There's so much that you can tell in an image, you know, without using any words. Uh, so that there's, there's a real power in that.
0: So you were in London and you had your first child over there. That's amazing. But you didn't grow up in London. Where, where did you? You grew up on a farm
1: yeah i grew up on a cattle property in central queensland just west of rockhampton called billowheeler but god i i don't know i I wasn't a very good farm kid i never thought that that's where i was going to end up even from a really young age i was extremely precocious child and my parents tell anyone that listens (laughs) uh i didn't really i didn't really have much of an interest in what was going on on the farm i don't know i think the turning point for me was maybe when I was 13 or 14, I flew down to Brisbane for a public speaking competition with my mum. Like I was just completely out of place. I must have looked like such a hick. And I look back on the photos now and just laugh. It was at that point that I was like, oh yeah, I'm moving to the city. Bugger billow. This is it. I'm a city person. Like I was so, I was so set on that being my life. And I would just tell anyone that was, I was, I was, I was such a dickhead, actually. I would tell anyone that would listen like, oh, yeah, I'm going to be the Prime Minister. I'm going to be a lawyer. I'm going to, you know,
0: I'm going to be a big deal. I don't know. What did you about the city? Why did you? I
1: don't know. It was just different to home, right? Home was boring. Home was quiet. Home was big. Uh, And the city, it felt like there were things happening. I think it's probably the natural inclination of a lot of kids, you know, just to seek out what's different. It's a bit like those city kids who go on gap years to stations in the Northern Territory. They're just looking for something different to, you know, their home environment.
0: And often yeah. the home environment has such deep roots that you feel safe enough to, to go outside of that. And like you're explaining, you have a huge ambition and you're allowed to do that.
1: It's a huge luxury, isn't it? And I didn't value it at the time, obviously, but it's a huge luxury. To be able to go around and go off and see the world. Like mum and dad were very upfront from the beginning. Like you're either here or you're not. So if you're here, you're part of the family operation and we start integrating you into succession plans now. <laughs> and if you're not, then go for it. Like go go overseas. Like So I think I was about 26 uh, and I was working full time at a TV station in Brisbane. And I just had this like existential crisis and quit everything dumped my boyfriend sold all my stuff and just left and my parents were the ones saying see you later go and do it it's amazing because they never got to Mm. my mum was pregnant when she was 20 or 21 and my dad was always going to take over the property there was no there was never another option it was just never even considered that he would do anything else and so they've both been huge cheerleaders for getting out and seeing the world you know i think they were shitting their pants when all three of us girls were in South America at the same time. and We were all kind of just seeing what was going on and mum and dad were kind of terrified but so excited for us because we were getting to do what they never, ever got to do. And I guess the difference is my sisters came back and one of them back to the property, Um, but I just kept going. It wasn't until eight and a half years later that I ever got to come home permanently.
0: Why did you come home?
1: I think it was like another existential crisis maybe. I had a baby. It just shook me to my core. You know, I had this really structured life, like with a company and doing pretty okay things and lots of travel and getting all of this great experience. And then I had a baby and I was just like suddenly by myself in this tiny, tiny, tiny flat in South London with no family. Um my husband's family lived out of London, so we saw them when we could, but I basically had no support. And it just hit me that like You know, what if I'm not a city person? What if I'm actually meant to be at home? Like, I just couldn't shake that. I don't want to call it darkness because I'm not like a super excited person (laughs) generally, but I just was really sad all the time. I think I was scared of getting postnatal depression because my family has a pretty long history of depression. And so I was just so scared of tipping into something bad, like tipping into a bad place that I really reassessed a lot of things. And it was after Magnus, my eldest, was born that I, you know, really started working on my husband, trying to convince him to come home. We could never get ahead in London,
0: like it, you know, it just felt like rat on a hamster wheel. How does your husband feel about moving to Australia, your life and your family?
1: It's been so hard for him. And I don't think I value that enough. He's very English, like he doesn't like going out to the property. He just thinks it's very empty. Like he sees it as emptiness. You know, like country people look out over land and it feels full mm-hmm. and maybe whether it's your connection to the land, you just know what can be created there and, and the potential of it and the value of it and, and how important it is kind of to the country. Well, My husband just sees like empty space and it's perception, you know. He grew up in this really heavily populated area and he just doesn't really particularly gel easily with country people like he just has no kind of he has very little connection to it so it's been a big challenge for him i would have loved to move back to the country but my husband just couldn't he yeah he couldn't so we kind of compromised yeah. <laughs> a little bit
0: how did you find your happy medium
1: i knew that i didn't want to see another house from my house uh, it's really important to me not to see another house i wanted to see trees from my house and so We moved to a small acreage on the Sunshine Coast and that seems like the best compromise. I'm still working on him to go a little bit further afield. (laughs) But I guess I got my um, rural fix by when I came back, my photography business was primarily focused on rural clients and working for rural publications so that I kind of could get the connection that I craved.
0: What was it like for you moving home And going back to the farm, and did you ever have any, I don't know, pangs to to move your life there? Coming
1: home, I saw everything with fresh eyes. My parents' property is very grassy and it's set against some small hills. I used to think they were mountains, but realistically they're small hills on the edge of a valley, and I never, ever appreciated the beauty of it. And I came home and it's just like I was seeing it for the first time. And actually, it makes me quite emotional. Oh. Um, I felt like I was coming home in a way that I never I never felt before. And sorry, I don't know
0: why I'm getting emotional about That's this. <laughs> oh. It's so deep. That's why, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it's primal, right? Yeah. And I think I'm nearly 40. I turn 40 next year. And... I spent my whole life running away from something trying to create a new life i realized that the life that i'd created had no value and it wasn't until i came home and started spending more time with my family who i barely knew you know i'd been away nearly 10 years and i almost felt like i was meeting them for the first time like i know that sounds so crazy but Spending time at home, driving around in a Toyota with my dad, spending so much time with my sister who, while I'd been away, had a thousand babies and was, you know, setting up her life on a property and I was just in awe of them. They're just such good people and what they're doing is so valuable and so important. I think that that's why... Starting the journal has been so i don't know such an important part of my life because it's felt like it's felt like I can kind of reconnect and contribute to this world that for a long time I kind of shunned and connect with my family like this is so dumb because I'm nearly forty, but it's really important that my mum and my dad approve of what i'm doing
0: <laughs> isn't that
1: that's silly but yeah, I want them to see me contributing to, I guess, to agriculture and to rural life in a way that I never did and never cared to.
0: Jess, I think that what you're actually expressing is a little bit universal for lots of girls who have come from farming backgrounds who don't necessarily find their place on the farm when, when our family was going through succession planning, I always used to say, I still want to contribute. And um, everyone was like, what does that mean? And I think we're all getting a little bit better at f- us as extra generations, but also our parents' generations at accepting different ways of contributing to agriculture. So the Bush Journal is an example of that. And I just don't think you're alone. And I love that you can articulate it in such a kind of vulnerable way.
1: I don't know if I articulated that very well, Sky, sorry. But that's exactly what I meant. Like I wish I'd explored a career parallel to agriculture. I really wish I had so that I could be part of the family operation. I really wish I could. I was a journalist for 15 years. So this is the way that I can contribute. And I love being part of those conversations at home about, I don't know, moving the bulls to the top paddock or whatever, whereas I, I, I never had an interest before. I'm interested about farming practices and how the challenges in growing Lachina when it won't rain and, you know, just like conversations that I was never part of before. The journal has actually given me access to it. I don't know. It's it's mm-hmm. very, it's difficult to explain.
0: No, I'm hearing you. You've taken an interest in shooting, taking photos of those things, which then extends its arm further to being curious about how it grows and why it looks like this in this season and not in that season. and
1: It's a journalist's curiosity, isn't it? Like, And I'm sure you get it as well, you know, when you're spending time in a community, any community, whether it's your own or another, and you're just that person who's always just like on the sidelines asking kind of silly questions Mm -hmm. but... Your job as a journalist gives you a reason to. It gives you an excuse to be just really curious about everything. And that's what I love about the journal, actually, because everything's a story. And I really believe that. You know, one of the first lessons I learned as a cadet journalist in the Seven Newsroom in Brisbane was there's a story in everything and anywhere. You have to be able to go to an event, any event, and find a story, find a human story from that event and that has been just it's been the most valuable tool probably of my career is my ability to find a narrative in just about anything because you just you're curious you're just not afraid to ask dumb questions Mm -hmm. all the time
0: Oh, I really that resonates so hugely with me because that's what and just any conversation could lead to Oh yeah. To Definitely. <laughs> and
1: I never leave I never leave without someone's contact details in case I want to ring ring up and ask them questions or set up a story later or I don't know.
0: And I've often been no one to like dash to the toilet, take the notepad in and like quickly scribble down all my notes so that I don't forget. Oh, the
1: notes on my phone are crazy. <laughs> I'm always starting stories in my phone. Actually I was lying in bed last night. I don't know, I'm sleeping with my two-year-old at the moment because he's sick. It's not great. It's not a great sleep. Um, But just before I went to sleep, I kind of whipped out my phone and started writing ideas. And I just think how cool that we have jobs where we can follow those tangents and, you know, get paid for it. Well, you know, I'm not exactly getting paid for it, but (laughs) you get my drift. Like you make a career out of uh, following those tangents and satisfying curiosity and like how cool is that?
0: We'll be back with Jess in just a minute but now a word from today's podcast sponsor Country to Coast EA. Country to Coast EA provides remote business support to regional businesses looking to scale up, streamline or achieve better balance. I have a feeling there's a lot of people listening to this that would fit into that category. They offer tailor retainer packages so that you invest only in the tasks that you and your business need to thrive. Plus, they can take care of life admin too. So if you think you're ready to reduce the overwhelm and leave the admin tasks to the professionals, make sure you contact Carly at Coast underscore EA on Instagram, or you can email her. Carly at countrytocoastea.com.au. So tell me about the Bush Journal and how it came about because it itself has its own story that could just be its own, its own podcast.
1: The beginning of 2021, mid-pandemic, I got an Instagram message to join an Instagram loop Uh, Now, if you don't know what an Instagram loop is, you're forgiven because actually I don't even know if they're popular anymore. But it's basically just joining a group of like-minded people and posting a photo and tagging the next person to send an audience around in a loop to see all of the work. It did pretty well. I guess a lot of people were on their phones in the pandemic. We all got on a Zoom call and sort of tossed around ideas about what we could do, and that group became Beauty in the Bush Collective. I guess I never really valued the power of numbers until joining the collective. Like being in this group of really fantastically talented photographers who made me want to be a better photographer, but also made me realise how individual photographers are sitting on like just huge resources of stories. They go out and shoot all of these amazing photographs for people and for themselves And a lot of the stories aren't really told properly. We were together for about six months uh, and I pitched to the group uh, about starting a publication and everybody was super keen and it's kind of snowballed from there. From the second issue, I took the journal, made it into a business and so started operating it as a business so it could be my job because it is a massive, massive, massive time suck and I had to legitimise that time by trying to make it into a business and so I still work with the collective uh very collaboratively like a a few of the girls in the collective do some work for me uh and are always there as sounding boards for stories
0: which is good. I just love how it came together and I've often thought as well in similar vein to you that photographers do have a lot of stories that never see the light of day and Yeah, I just think they're such interesting people and that should be celebrated a little bit more. The images are celebrated but not the person.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I think that this is why the collective has had such a lovely reception. Each of these women basically act as storytellers in their own region. They're uh, involved in different industries and so bring really beautiful perspectives to agriculture as a whole. So, you know, we've got farmers, we've got wool producers, we've got graziers. Um, and, you know, we're all kind of working in our own spheres uh, and bringing to light some really beautiful stories. Uh, like Lisa Alexander, I don't know that she is ever home. So she's uh, at Blackall in Western Queensland. And she's always like doing these really crazy outback trips, like hundreds and hundreds of kilometres of dirt road and capturing these really beautiful scenes. And because she and I are in almost daily contact, I feel like I get access to that really beautiful world that she exists in. I I feel very personally invested in the lives of of the collective members in a bit of a sort of semi-crazy way. Like we've all become really good friends and that's uh, the most beautiful thing that's come out of it. We kind of initially started as a bit of a professional alliance, if you'd like to call it that. You know, we talked about business, what do I charge for this? How do I do this? How do I negotiate with this? Because photographers live in this really kind of like weird world where, you know, there's no handbook on how to run a photography business, who to, how to charge this. And, you know, everyone kind of exists and works within really different skill levels and different kinds of environments. And so photographers have a lot of questions, but they're also in competition with each other. So to find a group of 10 photographers who work in a similar field, who are very, very open, so amazingly open about all aspects of their business has been, you know, wonderful, but also they're just amazing cheerleaders. They're really, really amazing cheerleaders. We're all so excited for each other when we kick goals or our kids do something or we go on cool trips or, you know, everyone's always kind of dropping photos into the group WhatsApp chat, like, oh my God, can you can you imagine? Can you see these colors? Oh, they're so amazing! Oh,
0: so good. So I feel like, yeah, the collective—it's it, still in operation.
1: Yes, it is. Um, we've been a little bit quiet on the social media front the last few months. I did
0: wonder whether that might just be a Instagram thing.
1: Well, it's a bit of—I mean, I have a love-hate relationship with Instagram. For the collective, uh, we've been working on a book, which is super exciting. Um, which comes out in October. I know it's. It felt like a bit of a no-brainer because between ten of us, we have this amazing library of really, really, really beautiful images. I probably have the smallest library, if um, if, if I were to admit anything. But yeah, the publisher came to us at the beginning of the year and said, "Look, you've got a book there. Do you want to pull it together?"
0: And what so it's was been that like, how did you share it? And it would have been a real oh my well, goodness just, moment.
1: We actually have, were in talks with another publisher at the end of last year and um, they kind of fell apart. We wanted different things. And we were so excited about that. We just couldn't, like, so many Zoom calls and group chats and all the things. And so that when the second email came through, we were like, mm, is it legit or is this going to fall over again? But yeah, they were really serious and they wanted it to be ready for Christmas this year, which is crazy. And I didn't realize how crazy, but. Most publishers work on a two-year cycle. So if you get a book deal in January, they'll aim to release it, not that Christmas, say the next Christmas. But our publisher, firm, wanted to release it this Christmas. And so, you know, the work was there. Like we didn't shoot anything bespoke for the book. It was just kind of collating it into themes. Amazing. So the work was there and it was just about creating the glue to stick it all together, which was my job.
0: So, are there stories in it as well, or is it just images?
1: So it's it's very image heavy. So I think it's two hundred and sixty pages. It's a beautiful coffee table book. The paper is so lovely and thick. And I've had all the samples kind of sitting here on my desk, and it's really it's going to be really beautiful. It's split up into chapters: uh, how we live, how we love, how we work, how we play, wow. and it really just brings to life what it's like to live in rural Australia, kind of from our perspective, that's what we wanted it to be. We wanted it to be really personal. Like this is our lives. Our families feature pretty heavily in there and the stories are just really deeply personal because I think that's the difference between the collective and say, I, I don't know, these are all our personal stories and with each of our images we're sharing our hopes and our fears and our feelings. And <laughs>
0: yeah, and <laughs> you're connected all together really On a personal level, family level, and it's not just professional.
1: And I think that that comes out, I hope, in the book. We are friends and these are our lives. You know, you're getting real insight into our lives, but also broadly like what rural life is all about, like the highs and the lows and it's not all roses, as we know.
0: So when does it come out?
1: End of October. Pre-orders are open. Are they? September.
0: Congratulations, that is such an achievement and it's just awesome. I mean people dream about this kind of stuff for years and years and years and you guys set up the collective and now the Bush Journal and things have moved at such an incredible pace and I think that's just testament to the quality of the work and the images.
1: And I think that there was a real desire there to make something happen Me personally, I'd just come out of maternity leave, you know, could feel everything firing up again, muscles coming back into action. What's the word? You know, when you start training again and you're like amazed at your strength, that's what it felt like for me. I felt like, yeah, I can do this. Like, this is exciting. And um, we've all invested a lot of time and a lot of work into making it happen. You know, just because we believe in it. Like, we really believe in the power of female storytellers and male too. But like, you know, I... I love that we're a group of women who just got together and made something beautiful together.
0: So do I. I love that. So talking about the Bush Journal, I mean, how have you even managed to keep both things going at once? Lots of little
1: (laughs) mini breakdowns. (laughs) You know, I was thinking about this the other day, listening to some 25-year-old talk about how hard it is to start a business, and I was just like, mate, have two kids. (laughs) Have a workday that is five hours because school kids have to be picked up at 2.30. Have a kid that started daycare and gets sick every two weeks. Mm -hmm. I just wish I'd had my shit together enough in my 20s to do something like this because I just think, wow, what could I have achieved? (laughs) I'm all the things for Bush journals, so that has been a real eye-opener. Like It's not just about making something pretty and everyone will find you and fall in love with it and buy a 1,000 copies. It's like oh, my God, I don't even know where to start. Like the design, the distribution, the marketing, like I'm packing orders at midnight. Marketing on them. the website. Oh, my God, yeah. And this is stuff that I just didn't. I mean, obviously, I'm a very idealistic person. Like when I get an idea, I'm just like, oh, my God, it's going to be so amazing. I'm just, oh, it's going to be so fun. And then the reality of it sets in and like it has really opened my eyes. But I think good things are worth fighting for and trying hard for. And like, I might fail. I hope I don't, but I might fail. But I feel like if you don't take a risk on things, you know, I was pitching to magazines for years since I've come back to Australia to try to get my writing career off the ground. Sometimes they'd respond, mostly it was just crickets. And I just thought like, am I going to wait around for someone to say yes or do I just write the stories that I want to tell and see if anyone likes them? A couple of years ago, if someone said to me, well, you're going to write the contents of a book <clears throat> that's going to be published nationally and is going to be in Kmart, then I wouldn't have believed them. I was like, well, how how is that going to happen? But that's come through the collective and that's come through the journal. And, you know, these are things that we started ourselves. And if you don't start these things, then no one will ever know what you can do. You're really like you're exposing yourself to a huge amount of risk you know, risk that people aren't going to like what you produce and that you've wasted your time and your money. But there's a chance people will like it. And even if people don't like it, I have loved so much pulling these issues together and seeing each issue come out and realise that they are getting better and the quality of the storytelling is getting better. You know, that's one of the things that I'm like, I feel like is the linchpin of the journal is really trying to weave beautiful stories and take readers to those places, you know, whether it's a shearing shed in Cowra or whatever, but really transporting them to a different place. And it's something that, like, I invest a lot of time and money into creating. And I just love writing the stories myself. Like, I just really, really, really love it. Really love it.
0: The piece you wrote about your dad is one that I have saved it's just so beautiful. Yeah, it's timeless.
1: I do wonder if people are a bit sick of hearing about my family. <laughs> because it's just for me, it's just like, you know what they say. Write about the thing that affects you the most, and and you know, my relationship with my family and my relationship with home is one of the things that has really affected my life and really caused kind of seismic shifts in how I see the world and myself. That's obviously like, as a writer you've got to tap into that because that's the good stuff, right? But I just also am conscious that like, yeah, people are probably sick of hearing hearing
0: that by now. So I've got to find some new inspiration, I think. I mean, I don't think so. You put it out there and people take it or leave it. <laughs> just if people are listening to this and they don't know about the Bush Journal, can you just tell me what it is and its frequency?
1: So it's a Newsprint Magazine. So it's magazine style, but it's in a newspaper. It looks and feels just like the newspaper you probably had delivered to your place 10 years ago, but you probably don't anymore because all the local newspapers shut down. But it's full of really, really beautiful stories about rural life. A little bit about photography. It was pretty heavy on photography in the earlier issues, but now we've veered generally to more general kind of rural stories. And they're really evocative stories about the men and women that live in rural Australia and regional Australia. And we try to bring some funnies as well. But it's really, really, really beautiful photography. We have a really high standard for photography. They're getting bigger. So I think our first issue was 40 pages. And our latest issue, which is out now, is 68 pages. There are so many stories I want to tell. We're just kind of restricted by the size of a newspaper and our budgets.
0: So what's the dream? For the bush
1: journal. Oh gosh, so many dreams, Sky.
0: Love it. I want to reach
1: more people. That's the big one. Uh, and I think partnerships uh, with connected businesses are the way is the way to do it. I want to build a team. We haven't really had the luxury of a team thus far, but I, I think for everyone to do their jobs better, we need more people. I want to reach the audience in better ways. So I think there's a real avenue of kind of increasing our digital content. But also, I just have a thousand story ideas which are just waiting for a budget to to execute. I just really want people to fall in love with the journal. I really it sounds a bit desperate, but I think there's a real gap in the market for evocative rural storytelling uh, about
0: men and women. I'm such a fan and such a champion of the Bush Journal. The quality is just so amazing and so awesome. And I don't know how people could not fall in love with it once they know about it, you know, that's the thing that you're saying. You want more people to know about it and it's such a consumable, such a consumable product and really nostalgic as well, which I love.
1: I think that's a real potential to partner with events and the hospitality sector for the journal. Because it has kind of lower production costs compared to more established magazines, glossies, you know, they're not so glossy anymore. But we've partnered with a couple of events in coming months um, to provide journals in gift bags and, like, say, the Birdsville races and a number of Women's Day lunches because they're just such a beautiful gift. We've even partnered with a wedding coming up, actually, where, so the, bride and, yeah, where the bride and groom wanted to give bush stories to their guests. So I think that's a real opportunity to partner with those kind of events and organisations to bring the journal to a wider audience. And hospitality, we've got a number of hotels on board actually who supply journals to their guests, which I think is a really a good growth area for us.
0: That's so cool. Yeah. What, what hotels?
1: So they're in Western Australia. There's a few in Western Australia in the wheat belt that we've partnered with. Hosts are looking for that that thing that makes their accommodation special. And I think, you know, something like the journal is that, right? It's stories. There's no better gift than stories, beautiful stories.
0: Well, I think that's an awesome place for us to leave it. So it's been lovely to interview you again and thanks so much for sharing so much of your story.
1: Thank you so much,
0: Sky. You can get behind Jess and the Bush Journal at bushjournal.com.au. One of the things that I did recently after these guys so generously supported and sponsored some episodes of this podcast was to buy a handful of subscriptions and gift them to my buddies in the city. Maybe that's something you could do too, especially with Christmas just around the corner. I really loved this episode because as I think you will be able to tell, it resonated quite deeply with me. If you did too, I reckon this is one to share with your other girl mates all around the country. Uh, We would love that. And the more the word can get out about company and daily routines and garden and all the podcasts from the Manson podcasting network, the better as always. Thank you so much for tuning in again and again and again and again. And we'll be back with you next week.